Hi again, everybody. Welcome into the Black and Blue Report podcast presented by SeatGeek. And on this Wednesday, I'm Sean Kelly, and we say hello, of course, from Orlando, Florida, where the Pelicans get set to take on the Orlando Magic tonight, looking to not only wrap up a two-game road trip, but perhaps even sweep it after an overtime on Monday night. We've got a lot to talk about today. We have a very special guest. It's Trey Wingo from ESPN. Trey, of course, is the co-host of Golick and Wingo on ESPN Radio, nationally uh, aired and syndicated mornings, of course. And then, of course, Trey Wingo is most present with regard to their coverage of the NFL as a host of NFL Live and, of course, uh, as the anchor basically for every hour of the NFL draft coverage that will be ours next month all throughout uh, the weekend on ABC and on ESPN. And for the first time, we have him with us today to discuss not only his career and what he does for ESPN, but, of course, the NFL, the free agency period, what the Saints have been up to, and, of course, some thoughts on the upcoming draft and the whole process that goes into that now basically built-for-television extravaganza that is watched by just about every fan of the league for three straight days. So Trey Wingo is our guest today. Trey, of course, is from Connecticut and has ties to Texas and California. His early career found him at a bunch of different towns, including St. Louis, Missouri, as a local sports anchor. And then in 1997, made the jump to the national stage and his time with ESPN, where he has covered everything from NFL, NBA, uh, women's golf, and so on and so on and so on. And obviously the big news last summer when he took over as co-host of Golick and Wingo on ESPN Radio. So, without further delay, we bring you today for the first time, our guest, Trey Wingo. This is the Black and Blue Report, presented by SeatGeek. Here's Sean Kelly. Well, Trey Wingo and I have one thing in common. That's St. Louis. I grew up there. He was a sportscaster there at KSDK Television in the 90s. Um, And I'm wondering, Trey Wingo, if back in the mid-90s covering the Cardinals and working with Mike Bush and everybody, that 20 years later you'd be on a nationally syndicated morning radio show and covering the NFL as the lead guy for a major network. Any thoughts on that? Uh, Yeah, it's a little crazy, right? So if you're from St. Louis, I have to ask the most St. Louis questions of all time. Where'd you go to school? Well, I went to to Priory, so. See, and and for people that don't know, that's the correct way to do this because – Folks in St. Louis, when they ask you where you went to school, they don't care about where you went to college. They want to know where you went to high school. And I know exactly where Priory is in St. Louis County. So well played, sir. Well, thank you. And it's it's interesting that you bring this up because, Trey, I now live in the only other city where that matters. New Orleans is exactly the <laughs> same way as St. Louis as to when someone asks you where you went to school, they mean high school, not college. It is the strangest thing. I've lived in both of those cities now. It was. It's. I think both are predominantly Catholic uh, cities, right? So I think that's a big reason why. Because Priory, obviously, that was a Jesuit school, so that makes all the sense in the world. Yes, it does. You're exactly right, Trey. I'm. I'm curious. Speaking of college and and hometowns, how does a Connecticut guy end up university? Just out of the clear blue sky. Well, my whole family's originally from Texas. My mom's from Texarkana. My dad's from San Antonio. Aunts, uncles, all over the state. Cousins. So let's just say there were a lot of us that cycled through. Uh, Baylor University over several decades, and I just happen to be another one of them. Well, that I guess there's the connection. That was easy enough. See, I was I was waiting for some strange recruiting story or a high school visit, college, and and Baylor ended up being the one. And 
and and see you've made it very simple and plain for me. <laughs> well, what's what's the old thing? Occam's razor usually the easiest uh, answer is the most likely one, and it was it was sort of genetically inbred, for lack of a better term. There's no doubt about that. I promise we'll get to some NFL here in a minute, but I mean, since you brought your family up, I've always wanted to ask you about. And and what he did as a pioneer, basically, not only as a, a member of the Life family, but also his role in helping to magazine and, and how that impacted you in your career. Well, it's actually a great story. My dad um, was uh, graduated from Baylor in 1957 and was working for his hometown newspaper. And then he decided if he ever wanted to try and make it big in the business, he wanted to go to New York. So he got on a train went up to New York, uh, got a room at the YMCA, and one morning walked into the Time Life building, which is now a completely different building, which is sort of a sad state of affairs, right across from Radio City Music Hall there, but had a name of someone he was going to meet potentially for a job. So he walked into the reception area and said, I'm here to meet so-and-so. And the, the person at reception said, well, he's not here right now. And so my dad was to thank you very much and started to walk out. And the lady at the reception area said, wait a minute, are you looking for a job? And he said, yes. And she said, well, that's not the person you want to talk to. You want to talk to this person. Hold on. And if she hadn't stopped him and walked out, he might have never got to meet the person he needed to meet. So he went on to become a reporter for Life magazine and moved out to California for a few years. And then in 1967, the whole family moved to Hong Kong because he became the, uh, the bureau chief for Life magazine covering the Vietnam War. And we, we lived there for a few years and moved back to the States in the early 70s. And Life magazine folded, and they kept my dad and three other people on staff, and they said, come up with a new magazine. And they came up with People Magazine, which is going to go down in history as the most successful magazine launch ever because nobody's launching magazines anymore, and it was the most successful at the time. What an unbelievable turn of events. Trey, what did he teach you about storytelling, and, and, and how does it impact what you do today? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, whenever we had a teacher in service day at school or whatever, I would always go into this New York City. We lived in, in a you know, small town in Connecticut right outside New York in Fairfield County, and I would always go into the office with him, and I just thought he had the coolest job in the world because, he, you know, all my other friends, you know, lawyers, bankers, dentists, doctors, certified public attorneys, whatever – but my dad had this really cool job where, you know, he got to talk about things that were interesting and had different hours. And he would actually send me around. I would be like his errand boy. Uh, they would give me copy to send from one area of the building uh, to another. And they put me on one of those office chairs that had, like, wheels on it. And I would just sort of wheel myself down the hallway and go deliver these copies to places all over the Time Life building. And I just thought it was really fun. And, he, you know, he sort of inspired me to find something that – to do that you thought was interesting and unique and that you really enjoyed doing. And, and so in that way, I guess he inspired me without even, without me even knowing he was inspiring. That's fantastic. Um, you know, speaking of that life where it's every day, every week, all year long, your life now with the NFL is much the same. Trey, I'm, I'm, I'm astounded at, at, at how the NFL has found a way to have relevant stories, storylines, and news nearly 12 months a year, and certainly this offseason is not disappointing either. How have you looked at it? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's sort of morphed, right? Like, it used to be you found out where the Super Bowl city was going to be 
on the old aggregate box score page on the back of the newspaper sports section. I mean, it was not a thing. Now we do television specials about where the Super Bowl is going to be, and we do a two-hour launch of the schedule show on ESPN. I mean, the NFL has taken over the sports landscape in this country, unlike anything I think I've ever seen before. And they've done a great job of sort of making sure that there's something going on all the time. And when they moved the draft to prime time six or seven years ago, I was like, this is crazy. This is never going to work. And, of course, it's been a home run for ratings. I wouldn't surprise me at all if the combine so soon goes to prime time. But, you know, I, the way I look at it, Sean, is there's really no offseason. There's four parts of the NFL year. There's the regular season, the postseason, what we're in now, which is what I call the player procurement season, which is, you know, free agency, pro days, and the draft. And then you have the preseason, which starts just a couple weeks after the draft with mini camps and OTAs, which goes into veteran OTAs and mini camps and goes right into training camp. There's really about two two week periods in the entire calendar year where nothing is going on in the NFL. Otherwise, you're right. It is relevant and there's something happening all the time. No doubt. And, and Trey, I'm looking at this, as you called it, the player procurement period. I do like it. Um, but for many, this would be considered the free agency period. And you cover this more heavily than I do. But I'm trying to remember a free agency period that had as much star power or interesting developments than perhaps the one we're in right now. And I guess I'm referring to even as yesterday with Vontez Perfect or what the Browns have done or Ryan Fitzpatrick is going to throw for his eighth different team. I mean, it seems like this has a little more sizzle than years past. Is that fair? No, I think it is. And I think it's because we're saying, I mean, my God, did anyone think Odell Beckham Jr. was going to be traded to the Browns this offseason? Uh, did we ever think going into last year that both Antonio Brown and Le'Veon Bell would be leaving the Pittsburgh Steelers and they're just letting them go, which is the amazing thing? You know, the NBA regular season sometimes, Sean, as you well know, seems all about getting to the offseason and who's going where. And I think the NFL is sort of getting there as well. I mean, it's just it's the craziest thing. And, and the, what I really like about this time of year more than anything else is that a lot of teams like the Jets will make these huge splash signings like Le'Veon Bell and C.J. Mosley. And, you know, it can work out. But, but historically, to me, it's this second wave of signings that don't get the headlines. They're not the biggest names, but they're fits. Like, for example, Randall Cobb going to the Dallas Cowboys. Well, he's the best slot receiver basically in the NFL since he came into the league. And, oh, by the way, Dak Prescott had the third highest passer rating last year when it comes to slot receivers. Sometimes it's these little tiny signings that go under the radar that aren't the big-name guys or the big-name contracts that have the most impactful uh, things that happen on the new team. There's a reason why everyone else was bidding out uh, all their cash for these certain players that Bill Belichick was shirtless in Barbados swimming and laughing his you-know-what off as everyone else opened the coffers. He'll probably pick up four or five more guys. That'll be very helpful in getting them to what could be a seventh Super Bowl when it's all said and done after the season is over. Yeah, it's very San Antonio-like. Yeah. Trey, have you been able to look at the Saints' free agency period? And if so, not to you in particular. Well, I, I, it's interesting, right? This is going to sound crazy, but I think maybe the most important thing the Saints did this offseason is not pick up someone new but not lose someone, and that's Teddy Bridgewater. Um, Drew Brees had another outstanding season, set all those records in 2018. But, you know, much like Tom Brady, we eventually believe they're going to stop. We eventually believe uh, there, there might be a fall-off. And I think making sure Teddy didn't leave for the job in Miami 
and is sticking around for a little while longer, I think was a, a very significant thing. Obviously, with Max Hunger retiring, Nick getting Nick Easton, that's going to be a big thing, and having Latavius Murray to replace Mark Ingram. But, you know, the one thing the Saints still need to do is the thing they tried to address all last year, as you well know, Sean, is to find that secondary wide receiver. And I think they still have to find a true number two option besides Michael Thomas. Michael Thomas is a clear number one, and I think there's a bunch of maybe threes there around him. So I think they need to find a true second wide receiver. Would, would that be in the draft, or does that have to be something that maybe you kick a rock over and find something post-draft at this point? Well, there's going to be a lot of interesting options in the draft. There's no question about that. Uh, I know that the Saints were somewhat on some level toying with the idea of Antonio Brown, but I'm not sure how serious that ever got to it. Uh, you know, if Des Bryant, who they signed last year before he ruptured that Achilles, if, he, if they still think he's healthy, I wouldn't be surprised if they try and go down that road again. Yeah, that's a good point. I think everybody's for, kind of forgotten about that, and I know that Des still has mutual interest there. Um, the Saints will be hamstrung somewhat in the draft in that they don't have a lot of picks, Trey. I, I don't think that they that they wouldn't try and trade back up into the first round, but at the same time, uh, they're they're not as equipped as most other teams right now. And look at maybe the history of teams trading up or getting back into the first round. In the NFL, do you find that to be an easy process, or is that a little more difficult? Well, what's interesting is how the Saints got to the position they're in, right? Because if you look over the last couple of years, the Bears made a huge trade a couple of years ago to move up one slot to get Mitchell Trubisky. In that same draft, both the Chiefs and the Texans moved up from the 20s to 10 and 12, respectively, to get to Sean Watson and Patrick Mahomes. And you normally make those big jumps to try and get a quarterback. Well, the Saints parlayed a first-round pick last year to pick up a pass rusher in Marcus Davenport, uh, which was it. The move wasn't unusual. The, the, the pick they used with that move was unusual. You normally do that for a quarterback, not so much a pass rusher. And when he was on the field and healthy, Marcus played well last year, but he's going to have to be, I think, much more of an impactful player going forward in 2019 to justify the move they made up to get him last year and what it cost him. Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't think about that angle of it as well. Trey, as you get ready for the draft, favorite thing about hosting – every stinking hour of the thing and, and worst thing about that process? Uh, well, the best thing about it is, look, we're, we're in this phase of reality television, right, where everything is, uh, you know, who wants to marry my dad? And, uh, you know, America's next top whatever. And it's all scripted. There's no reality in reality television. Those cameras are there. You can't avoid them. It's all sort of put together, and you're aware of it. We have no idea what happens every year. Give me an example. Two years ago, you could have made a ton of money if you went to Vegas and said, you know what? I bet there's going to be a first-round pick that's going to drop in the first round because someone's going to post a video of him smoking weed in a gas mask. And we're like, yeah, okay, right, like that's going to happen. And that's exactly what happened to arguably the best offensive lineman in the NFL draft. We have no idea what's going to happen, and we sort of fly by the seat of our pants. That's what makes it really fun for me. As for the downside, it, it is long, uh, but, I, I mean, it's fun. Look, I, 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 I completely wear the badge. I'm a football geek. I love everything about it. I understand that some people don't like it as much as me, and I get that. But I enjoy the entire process. I get excited when I see the first kicker come off the board. I mean, one of the greatest things that happened last year was, uh, was what happened with Shaquem Biffin and being there for, for that and seeing that play out and seeing the reaction across the NFL for that. Uh, I look forward to Mr. Irrelevant, you know, and – the whole process is fun for me, and I, if I wasn't working it, I'd be watching it anyway, so you might as well get paid for doing it. Well, yeah, 
I mean, that's a good point. I, and Trey, if you were to pull back the curtain a little bit here for NFL fans and those who'll be watching the draft on ESPN and ABC, what should fans know that perhaps they don't about the way that you all either present the broadcast or the process of trying to figure out what's next and prognosticate a little bit? Well, I, the most important thing is that what they see is a small tip of the iceberg to, is to what the preparation is for the draft, right? Like, there's 256 draft picks every year, give or take. And there's probably 700 draft-eligible players that, that have a chance to get in. And the, the, the people, the men and women behind the scenes that do the work and find those video clips that they call up automatically as soon as this kid is drafted, they spend the entire year scouring the, the globe, scouring literally the globe in some cases with some of these kids now trying to make it from overseas, finding video of these guys, finding video of these kids from incredibly small colleges in western Pennsylvania or in Canada or in places in Kansas you've never heard of, and we have it. There was one, I can't remember what year it was, it, was a, it had to be six or seven years ago when the draft was still in New York. There was a guy that somebody drafted, I can't remember who it was, the NFL itself, the league, didn't have him listed as a person that could be drafted, but he was in Mel Kuyper's big blue book, and we had information on him. So the thing that I would want to stress is the, the amount of preparation that goes on by the men and women behind the scenes that he has seen, and quite frankly at the NFL Network as well, uh, they do an unbelievable job year-round of trying to have that information ready for us when it happens. It, it's like the old Titanic. You know, you see the tip of the iceberg, and then what hits you is what's underneath the water. What really carries us through the draft is what's underneath the water that people don't see. Yeah, it's fascinating. It really is. Uh, and we'll look forward to enjoying it, too. I mean, you know, we're, we're speaking to probably a collection of folks right now that are as geeked up about the NFL as we are when it comes to New Orleans and the Saints and their fans and whatnot. Speaking of being geeked up, uh, Trey, I do have to bring up one other thing. Uh, I did an ESPN radio game with John Barry this past Sunday, uh, right during the final round of the players. And I don't think there was a timeout in our basketball game where John was not checking his phone uh, with regard to the players. As I understand it, you would probably have done the same thing with your passion for golf. Oh, absolutely. For seven years, I hosted the women's tournament. And one year, uh, the players, oh, no, Bay Hill was going on uh, when Tiger Woods was coming back and winning for the first time. Uh, in forever since 2013, he started the day five strokes back of Sean O'Hare that round and somehow came back and won for the first time. And we're doing the show on Sunday, doing this, and all I'm doing is watching uh, what's going on there in between commercial breaks. So, yeah, believe me, I get it. And, by the way, April 14th is going to be one of the great days of the entire calendar year in 2019. It's the final round of the Masters, followed up by the season premiere of the final year of Game of Thrones. So not much gets better than that. Well, have no NFL draft prep on Sunday, April 14th, is what you're telling me. Locked and loaded on other things, that's for sure. Who wins the Masters in 2019? Okay, if I knew that, I'm going to Vegas right now, and I don't. But I, I, I certainly wouldn't <laughs> bet against Rory McIlroy with the way he's looking right now as he has a chance to finally cement that legacy and get into that elite, elite group of winning all four professional majors. I think we've hit everything. New Orleans and St. Louis, uh, culture with regard to high schools, um, your morning radio show, the NFL, your family, golf, um, and Game of Thrones. I think we've got the five topics that we need to, to finish with. Listen, we just didn't do beignets, and we didn't do the refs costing you guys the NFC Championship game, so we're all good. See, now that's – see, we were doing so well, Trey, until that moment. <laughs> 
sorry. That's okay. Trey Wingo with us here on the Black Report. Trey, it was our pleasure, that's for sure. And we wish you all the best, and we will certainly be watching uh, come later on in April for uh, the NFL draft. Sean, happy to do it. Let's share a Ted Cruz custard one of these days. Oh, man, I'm in. I'm in. Thanks, Trey. I appreciate it very much. You got it, Sean. Take care. Well, I hope you'll agree that was an outstanding visit, and Trey Wingo was a fantastic guest. We've been lucky enough to get a lot of good folks here on the Black and Blue Report podcast, uh, and Trey Wingo certainly will be near the top of our list here so far in 2019. Again, big thanks to Trey Wingo, Bill Hoffheimer with ESPN, and uh, Doug Tatum, too, for helping us put together today's um, show in particular, our guests. Thanks again to Daniel Salerson as well. He's been back in Studio B helping us put all this together. And Daniel will be a part of our radio coverage tonight from Orlando with regard to the Pelicans and the Magic. We're on the air at 5.30 for pregame coverage. Tip-off is at 6. And, of course, there's also television coverage on Fox Sports New Orleans. Pelicans will come home after the game tonight. They will not play again until Sunday, but a big home game on Sunday. Houston Rockets will be in town. That's certainly a team that you want to see in person this year, uh, and there is a lot going on. Details at pelicans.com. And don't forget our Sunday tips are a little bit of a different time, uh, and so make sure that you're aware of that as well. Ongoing coverage at pelicans.com and, of course, neworleansaints.com. John DeShazer is leading up our coverage there during this, uh, as Trey Wingo would call it, the player procurement period, uh, and that includes, of course, Nick Easton joining the Saints to uh, perhaps replace Max Unger, who announced his retirement. We're going to miss Max a lot uh, on the field and, of course, probably more importantly, in our building, one of the real great ones that I've had a chance to cover over the years. And so we appreciate his time with the Saints, and we'll look forward to what Nick Easton and the rest of the newest Saints here this spring will have for us later on this summer. Caroline and Ashley for you on Friday. The girls are in for the Friday edition of the Black and Blue Report. I'll be listening. I hope you will be, too. And until next time, I'm Sean Kelly. Have a great rest of your week. We'll see you next time here on the podcast for Saints and Pelicans fans.